You're listening to Money Self Made, and today's episode is a good one. I think you're really going to enjoy it. In honor of dry January and any hangover we might be having from our New Year celebration, I talked to an anonymous sobriety coach who shares a really interesting process on self-discipline and habit change. So even if you're not quitting drinking, I think that this will be beneficial for you. You can stay tuned until the end of the episode where I break down how Bell's tips can be used and implemented for any habit or behavior change, whether you're looking to eat healthier or sleep better this year. And if you are quitting drinking, I think it will be exactly what you need to hear to kick off your dry January in style. Please excuse the fact that Zoom rejected my microphone halfway through. Uh, so my audio isn't great, but Belle, she is pitch perfect. So please enjoy. I'm here today with Belle Robertson, who is the founder of tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com, such an excellent domain name. And Belle is a sobriety coach and pen pal, and she's anonymous, which I think is extremely cool. I'm honored to have her on the show today, and she's going to help us kick off dry January in 2021. So welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. For people who maybe haven't heard of you yet, we should start from the beginning, maybe where your relationship started with drinking and and how it evolved over time to where it is now. Sure. Um, I think I was I was somebody who didn't drink in high school, which was slightly unusual. Um, and then I had a few drinks once I was like 20, in my 20s. Um, but even when I was in my 20s, I sort of knew that alcohol spoke to me and it said, drink me. So I would go to the store and buy only what I intended to drink for that day. Like I would buy literally one bottle of beer and then come home and then drink it. And then the next day I'd go back and buy one because I somehow knew even then not to buy six. And then over time, the one a day, you know, come home from work, have your one beer. It felt very sophisticated when you were 20, um, became two. And then periodically it would become three. And then I realized that it was pretty much every day. And then it was sometimes more than three, although not that often, but it was continuous daily. And I got to a place where I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is actually a problem. I think I'll try to quit for a month. Just see what happens. And I got about seven days in and I was like, wow, this is way harder than I thought. Even if I don't meet the sort of stereotypical definition of what is an alcoholic, quote unquote, my head asked for alcohol and thought that having it every day was a good idea. Um, that seemed concerning to me only because it was hard to quit. If I hadn't tried to quit, I wouldn't even really have questioned it probably. But once I tried to quit and found out that it was hard to do so, then my head was put it together. It's like, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> this is trending in the wrong direction. <laughs> so then here, I mean, so here I am. I'm, um, I tried to quit for that one month. It didn't work. Then a couple months later, I tried again to quit for a month. Again, same thing. I'll prove to myself I don't have a problem by quitting for a month. And um, I got about seven or nine days in and thought, oh, this is way harder than I thought again. Except that the second time I changed what I was doing and added in some additional supports, including writing my own sober journey down online in a place where people could read it. Um, and then I've been sober since. I, so I quit for dry July in 2012. And now we're, now we're here. So we, I guess we could say that I liked it. Well, considering I didn't intend to quit for more than a month. Um, yeah, it seems like a long time. 
stuff I really like about your story is you speak to the way that we treat alcoholism in our culture, which is, you know, the guy on the TV show who has a drinking problem and relapses and goes to rehab and wrecks his car. Whereas some of us just kind of notice that our glass and wine a night has become two glasses, has become three, um, and just mm. see that trend. And, and I guess you called it a, um, a high bottom drinker. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I think um, in the sober world, in the world of AA and rehab and stuff, they'll often talk about having a low bottom, like it's a person for whom there have been significant consequences from their overdrinking. And so on the other side of that, you might have somebody who has a high bottom, which means they've had fewer consequences, but still consequences. I think we need to be clear that we've still lowered our standards. We've still said we're going to do something and then not done it. We've still made a deal with ourselves and then not fallen, followed through. Um, we maybe haven't had trouble with the law yet, and we maybe haven't been drinking and driving or been, not been caught drinking and driving yet, and we maybe have called in sick for work, but not weekly yet. Um, so it's the yet, though, right? So high bottom drinker is a person who's had fewer consequences, but there's still consequences. But lots of people just brush them off and say, oh, I'm a high functioning over drinker, as if somehow that's, you know, an accomplishment. Yes. I really liked the analogy, the elevator analogy I've heard you use as well. So mm -hmm. some people get off on the first floor, some people get off on the 10th floor. Um, feel free to tell me if I'm getting that right. Yeah. Well, if booze is an elevator that only goes down. True. <laughs> I think people find that hard to accept, but you know, one drink becomes two becomes four and I'll quit now becomes I'll quit later becomes maybe next year. And um, if you have negative consequences from drinking and then you continue to drink, you will have more negative consequences or worse negative consequences. And so if booze is an elevator that only goes down, you need to get off the elevator before you hit bottom. Again, lots of people go to the bottom. Um, but if you have the opportunity to step off earlier, then I think, uh, I think we should, because it's, it's, it's as easy as it's ever going to be. Like, if it's hard to quit drinking when you have three glasses of wine a night, imagine how hard it is when you have three bottles of wine a night. If only because you've had six more years of drinking behind you. It's not that it's specifically hard to quit drinking based on quantity. It's the length of time that it goes on. And then you have more shame, you have more regret, you have more consequences. And honestly, if you have lots of consequences from over drinking, it becomes hard to quit because then you just think, oh, I've already made a mess of it all. Like it's already all sort of gross and I've already screwed it all up. I think people come to the idea of wanting to be sober because they are unhappy with some aspect of their life. And I mean, sometimes people approach it like as a self-discipline challenge, but usually it's because there is some thing going on in their life that they can tie to alcohol, that they're pretty sure if they remove the booze, some part of it will get better. Sometimes it's weight loss. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's marriage stuff. Sometimes it's, I haven't been able to follow through on writing that book I said I wanted to, or I wanted to go back to grad school, but it turns out I can't get up at six in the morning because I have a hangover. Um, but other times it's, you know, we've had too much to drink and then said something really dumb that we can't take back. Or we have damaged friendships or relationships or we're texting exes or we're doing all of that sort of behavior that is sort of like cringeworthy when we're sober. But when we're drinking, it just makes sense somehow. Um, and so people come at it usually because they want to feel better than they have been feeling. And that, that, I think that's enough of a, that can be enough of a reason. You can decide you want to quit drinking because you'd like something better. You don't have to wait for it to be bad, quote unquote. In fact, you probably shouldn't wait until it's bad because if it's already hard now, how much harder will it be in six months? 
100%. Yes. I love also that you talk about that wolfy voice. And in general, you talk a lot about those voices that speak to us, how wine speaks to you. And that's something I've been really fascinated with as well, um, not just with sobriety, but self-discipline and trying to discern what is the voice to listen to and what voice isn't. You know, maybe the voice that's telling you to go on a crazy diet isn't the good wolf talking sometimes, mm. you know? So how have you kind of navigated that voice? Well, for me, any voice that isn't saying, take good care of you is the addictive voice, especially to do with drinking. Like if we think about all of the times that our head says, just one more, I'll quit later. It's not that bad. She drinks more than I do. Therefore, I don't have a drinking problem. Um, It was just that one time. It was just because I drank hard liquor. Next time I'll drink something else. Or maybe I'll try to moderate and have water every second glass, like all this thinking about drinking, which is the name of the site, right? All of this thinking about drinking is really exhausting. So, you know, you can come to this, this quitting drinking thing, like we said, like from, from a bunch of different sides. But if you have a head in your head, a voice in your head that says that drinking's a good idea, we'd have to call that the wolfy voice or the addictive voice because drinking's not a good idea. We've already proven that. And like you, your experience, once you've had it a period of time sober and you know that it's better, then if, if you, even if you are to relapse and drink again, you already know that it isn't what you want. And as soon as you start drinking again, you're like, I wish I was back there uh, where I just was yesterday. I want to go back there to yesterday. That's so true. That's exactly how I felt. Some, bre- some friends came into town, so we drank with them. And then for three months, it was hard to quit again, but I knew I didn't enjoy it. And right. uh, looking back at that time was so productive too. Like the output of creativity and work I was doing was um really interesting. I lost weight. I felt so great. The days that you lose to the hangovers and uh, all of that is just such such a tremendous amount of calories and time that can really derail you sometimes, I think. Right. But also not being able to keep your word to yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it erodes your self-esteem. It erodes your self-confidence. You can't, like, we can't downplay the fact that feeling proud of yourself um, changes your whole life. Like, it's not just about quitting drinking. You feeling proud of yourself because you can actually follow through on this really hard thing, which is getting your head to stop asking for something that's addictive, that then when you consume the addictive product, your head asks for more. Like, getting that to stop uh, is a big deal. And so when we do, then we can use some of those tools and skills in other aspects of our life, too. Like weight loss, for example. Further, further along, you'd want to do the sober stuff first for about 200 days before you add in other goals. Because like you said, the voice that says, I should go on a wacky diet when you're on day six sober is the addictive voice because it's basically going to then drag you away from the work that we need to do to be sober with some other large goal. And, oh, look, we're going to take our eyes off the ball of the drinking. And then how long until we're drinking? I mean, the number of times somebody has signed up with me for support, ask me for advice. And I say, leave the weight loss a bit. You're doing good. You're doing good with the sober stuff. Leave the weight loss a bit. They then go on some wacky diet. Try not to tell me (laughs) because, you know, what do I know? And then relapse. And then they have to email me and say, I did the thing you told me not to do. I did the big diet. Um, But our head thinks that adding in another, like subsequent large goals, stacking the large goals all at the same time is a good idea. Like feel that adrenaline, right? I'm going to declutter my house, pay all my bills read all my books, lose my, lose my weight, cut, quit drinking at the same time. It's like, yeah, and you have a head that thinks that drinking is a good idea. And so if you take your eye off of that ball, guess what? Friends will come into town and instead of saying to them by text three days in advance, can't wait to see you. I'm not drinking these days. So I'll have tonic. Where do you want to meet? And they'd say, can't wait to see you because they haven't seen you in a long time. Really miss you. And they really like you. And they don't give a shit if you drink or not. 
there I swore and probably wasn't allowed to swear. Oh, you're allowed to swear. Swear away. (laughs) (laughs) All about the swearing. Actually, that's one of the things I love about your coaching and writing voice in general. So. Yeah, it's sort of who I am. I can't really turn it. I mean, I can turn it off if there's a five-year-old in the room, but only if I have to, because really I would still rather swear in front of a five-year-old if I, th- if I thought I could make a point. Yeah. Yes. Now I go for it. I agree. I can't even keep it together if there's a five-year-old. I'll have to work on that too along with my sobriety. But <laughs> That's really cool. I like that. And um, have you seen, I'm the same, like when I try, I try, I think I was trying to diet and quit drinking at the same time. And I found what would happen is that wolfy voice would use um, drinking as an excuse to get the calories I needed, or it would use drinking as an excuse to go off the diet, derail the diet. And, you know, like I'll have one glass of wine, but that would lead to completely, you know, eating until 11 o'clock at night and that kind of thing. So um, I think drinking is one of those cornerstone habits that you can quit and suddenly you'll see everything in your life get better if you can stick with it. Right. But also because you feel proud of yourself, but also because you learn self-soothing skills, but also because you learn about rewards and treats and thinking about things differently and you learn about reframing. And I mean, these are skills that you have to learn to quit drinking. You have to learn to be okay doing with what's best for you, regardless of what anybody else is doing. Um, and so when we learn those skills, then you're right. We can use those skills in other parts of our lives for sure. I love that. Yeah. I've, um, I'm starting the new year. I listened to the one thing, which is a really good book. It talks about sort of compounding habits and, um, the author talks about earning the right to quit something else. So once you quit drinking, you can earn the mm. right on that diet mm-hmm. on that diet. You can earn the right. Um, so I really like that thought because trying to do it all at once is like juggling 10 balls in the air and one will easily drop and then they'll all go. Well, and we've tried it that way, right? Like the thing is, if we look at it empirically, we have tried doing it all at once. It didn't work. So then we have to try something else. I think that every time we relapse, it's a sign that we need to try different. We have to change our approach. Sometimes it's, we keep the tools that we've been using and we add other tools. But oftentimes it means also removing um, overwhelming competing goals so that you can, and people are going to say, oh, but it's lockdown or it's COVID or I'm doing a master's degree or I have twins. Don't you understand? I can't give it up. And then I'll say, do you have to cook three course meals? Do you have to hand make the baby food? Do you have to change your sheets once every three days? Could it, could it be once a week? Could it be once every two weeks? Oh my goodness. Could, could you stretch the, the towels out, you know, an extra couple of days, stop doing so much laundry. So that you had some time for sober audios or a, an online meeting or some reading or whatever. Um, lots of people say that they're too busy. Um, but we had time to drink. And we had time to suffer the hangover. And we had time to lose. I mean, if you think about it, if you're like me, you'd come home from work at six or seven or eight. And then you would have some kind of simple dinner. And then you would drink. And then you would go to bed. And so it means that from like 7 p.m. until 10 p.m., nothing really happened. Like nothing of measure. Lots of TV watching and popcorn eating, um, or like you said, you know, just sort of compulsive eating later in the evening. Um, but we had a, that's like three hours, then we can get back if we remove the alcohol. Was that your experience too when you quit? Did oh. you find you had more time? Oh my gosh, so much more time. I mean, I think I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it um, and just how great I felt. And the things that I was able to get done and the energy that I had was just kind of crazy. I hear that there's a lot of highs and lows, though, in terms of energy and um, sweets, cravings. I know that I'm excited. I'm doing 100 days this year, and I hope it turns into forever, but I don't want to put that Mm -hmm. on myself (laughs) because you recommend. uh, Just take it one day at a time. So what are like some of the things that clients have experienced in their first 100 days? that you help them get through or that they really love getting through? I think um, for most people, there's like a seven to nine day 
detox, like the first week or so, even if you don't drink very much, it still takes time for your body to process the alcohol that you've been consuming. So a lot of people will feel crummy to begin and then feel quite a bit better as they go along, physically better. Um, Usually sleep improves as well in the first 30 days-ish. Oftentimes the prickly mood can soften a bit. Um, how we feel about other people, but also how we feel about ourselves will sort of soften as we go. Also, I definitely found my anxiety was better as I went along, but then, you know, what, what people deal with, it depends on each individual person. Of course, sometimes people are dealing with marriage stuff or they have a partner who drinks or they're, they have kids who have special needs or they have kids who have learning issues or emotional issues of their own, or they have a coworker who's a bully or they have a patient who died or, you know, any number of things. And so every relationship that I have with a, with a pen pal is completely unique, obviously, because everybody's life is different, but the situations are similar and how we cope with them or don't cope with them is similar. Um, I've worked with, you know, more than 3000 people over the last seven years. And one thing that still to this day, it seems like a surprise to me is how similar we are. Like, Somebody else who doesn't have kids is the same, quote unquote, as somebody who does have kids in that they have a voice that thinks that drinking is a good idea and that voice is very mean to them and that voice gets quieter the longer away from day one you get and then that voice stops and the 77-year-old says that and the 27-year-old says that. And I've worked with both. I mean, in fact, right now I have a pen pal who's like 19 and I have one who's in her late 70s and everybody in between, male and female, uh, every possible permutation and combination. I love that you're anonymous because it sounds like a lot of people and your clients are extremely high functioning, very successful publicly, you know, um, and are looking for kind of that anonymity. And it's amazing what people can sort of um, can do if they're like how you've gone and been anonymous on the internet. What was the reasoning behind that? Um, I think because I felt that I couldn't be honest about what my situation was. If I was drink, if I was, putting my face on it. Like I sort of lived in fear, like of my mother reading my blog or when I first quit and I didn't want any questions or scrutiny from people who knew me. I didn't want people saying, Oh, you're not an alcoholic. And then I also didn't want them saying, Oh yeah, she really needed to quit. Like I didn't want either of those. I didn't want either of those groups of people to speak at all. I was having a hard enough time with the inside of my head, but I think I'm pretty sensitive to that kind of pushback or criticism anyway. So it was a way of protecting myself. I honestly think though, if it wasn't anonymous that I wouldn't have done it. Um, that's just who I was and who I am. And lots of people say, oh, you must stand up and tell everybody or that you must burn all bridges or, or, or share it from the rooftops. And I I think that the measurement of whether or not you're successful is, are you long-term sober? If you're not, then you might want to change what your approach is. Like we said before about try different. And so sometimes that might mean you have to tell somebody, but I think if you're long-term sober and, um, you're like, I don't talk about it. I work um, in food service. And so if I meet a new client, it's not like I then say to them, oh, by the way, I haven't had a drink in 2000 days. Like it would never come up in conversation. If somebody said, do you want to go for drinks? I'll say, I don't drink, but I'd love to come and have tonic. Or I'll say, that sounds great. Maybe we can eat for coffee. Because what they're really saying is, you know, want to go for a drink. Because what they're saying is, can we, t- can we talk? Can I get to know you? Wouldn't it be fun to hang out? It doesn't necessarily mean, can I pour alcohol down your throat? Um, and so most people you can say, I don't drink, but I'm happy to come for coffee. Could you have coffee? And you sort of make it like a joke. And then they're like, I got coffee. And then, you know, then you have coffee. Uh, the number of people who then ask beyond that, what's up with me is like, um, one person in seven years, really. Um, 
one person said to me something like, you're not drinking these days. I said, no, it's affecting my sleep. And she said, oh, when I drink it, I sleep like a baby. And I thought, no, well, okay. So then my next sentence was, well, you know, it's, uh, I found it's affecting my hormones. And then she says, oh, really? Because I think it helps my hormones. And I, again, I thought, like, she, she's going to make a reason why drinking is a good idea, right? So she's telling me something about the inside of her head. Um, she's not saying, oh, really? You found something that works for you, which is to have no alcohol and you feel better? That's really great. What she's saying is, oh, my God, I could never quit. Like, really, that's what she's saying in a, in a matter of speaking. So when I hear that, I don't then feel like I need to leap in and, like, educate her <laughs> because she's not asking how to be sober. Uh, uh, she's basically affirming the fact that she's a drinker. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm not, uh, uh, my job is not to change your mind. I stay, again, because I'm anonymous, I think I stand still. I'm on the internet. If people are looking for that support, they'll find it. And that friend of mine has never found me online, right? So I don't walk around saying, oh, I have a website where I help people quit drinking because she's not my target audience. Like she's not interested. If you wanted to find me online, you would be searching for how to quit drinking. And if you're not searching for how to quit drinking, then I don't talk about it with anybody. I don't even use the word sober in real life, except for online. I never say the word sober or recovery or any of that kind of language or high bottom or any of that. I say, I mean, we, we recently moved into a new building where the neighbor said, you should come by for drinks. And I said, well, we don't drink, but uh, happy to come for tea. And she's like, I got tea. And it's like, that was it. So did, does she then say, did you have a problem? I mean, somebody you just meet shouldn't say that to you unless they have really poor boundaries, in which case you should know that right away. <laughs> I love that. And I think your life is also just really fascinating, at least from what I've gathered. Uh, last last I checked, you did have a day job. I don't know if that's still going yep. and you're a cater yep. and you're doing this yep. pen pal thing. Like, I am very impressed. I can't even keep up with my emails without pen pals. So. <laughs> well, I have, an, I have an apprentice who helps me, but I also get to decide how many pen pals I have at a time. So I can, um, my apprentice will reply often to people. I mean, sometimes the, the questions are, or the, the, sometimes people just email and say sober and nothing else. And sometimes there people email and have like questions or concerns or need to be talked through something, right? So it's different kinds of responses for sure. But um, I get to control how many pen pals I have at a time. That I've worked with 3,000 people over the last seven years does not mean I'm working with 3,000 people right now. That would be dumb. It's about, it's between 50 and 75, but it depends on the time. But even then, if you have 50 people signed up for sober support, some of them have returned because they've been with me for three years, so they don't need daily handholding. Some of them um, are repeatedly relapsing and are not yet in a place where they can hear anything new. Some people email four times a day like I ask them. Most people don't. Some people email and tell you everything, and some people say nothing except the word sober, but they're continuously sober, so it's working for them, so we don't question that either. So even to have 50 pen pals doesn't mean any, doesn't just doesn't describe the workload at all. Like I have to be prepared for every new pen pal to be somebody who is going to need 12 emails a day and a lot of handholding. Um, and then there's other people who sign up and they literally send a one word email once a day and everything in between. So I never know. And I don't pre-screen when I sign people. Like I don't, if I wanted to have really good success numbers, I would only work with people who were already sober or already 30 days sober even. Um, I don't pre-screen. So I, when people sign up, it's because they know something about me. I know nothing about them. So we just start wherever they are and we go from there. And if they're sober, then we work with that. And if they're not, then we work with that. I love that. Is there sort of a toolkit um, 
that you equip your clients with for the first, for the toughest part, which I imagine is the first like 30 to 100 days in terms of how to, you know, what to do with your hands at parties, how to respond to questions, um, just so that they can kick off with momentum and success. Is there anything mm. you can describe? Well, the first, like if you sign up for one-on-one support with me, you get a bunch of audios to listen to. And some of them have things exactly like you said, like who to tell and what to say. Um, we, we sort of need practice on what some of those sentences are. But often, if you just say, I'm not drinking these days, you don't say it's a challenge. You don't say how many days. You don't say forever. If you say, I'm not drinking these days, I think I'll have a tonic. That's good for like 75 people. For 25% of people, they might say, oh, really? You don't drink at all? And then you say, well, I just found it was affecting my sleep. One in 30 times, you'll get somebody make a more jackass comment and say, really, you don't drink at all? Like, uh, can't you even have one? But I can tell you that that, that happens as much more rarely than you might think. Most people don't care. So part of what we have to learn in terms of a toolkit is that we're not alone in our with this idea that we need to quit drinking. There's thousands of us doing the same thing. But that doesn't mean that you talk to your drinking friends about it and that, that they're going to get it. They're not going to get it. So you have to decide where you share these stories and with whom, from whom you ask support as well. Because often a typical newbie mistake is to ask a drinker for support or ask a drinker to get it or to ask them to help you count or to ask them to help you moderate or to celebrate you when they haven't done what you're doing and don't even understand why you would or how hard it is. Um, other toolkitty things, probably the need for sleep, the need for alone time, even when you're an extrovert. Um, having some kind of accountability is really helpful so that you're not just alone in your head. Listening to audios I found really super helpful. I mean, there's reading is great, but hearing people's voices, well, you know from having a podcast, there's something different about voice um, when you can hear somebody else's voice. I use lots of treats in my sober coaching, the idea of having rewards and treats when you do hard things, like quit drinking. I've written a book that has is actually titled, not very inventively, Tired of Thinking About Drinking. It has the same title as the name of my blog. It's on Amazon. If you if you look at that book, it's like how to quit drinking, what to expect when, things to look for, what should I expect when this is happening, what do I say when this happens. But then the whole le- appendix in the back of the book, there's a list of 60 sober tools all the way from go to bed early to inpatient rehab and everything in between. And the problem is that most people use about five tools when really we would do better with 15 or 20 or 30. And then if you relapse, then you add in 10 more. And then if you relapse again, you add in 10 more so that you're getting a new result. I mean, that's the thing. The most, the most common problem is that people have a drink and then start again, say, okay, this is my new day one, but they don't change anything about what they were doing in terms of how they approached it. So it's one thing to collect tools, of course. It's another thing to actually use them. So sometimes having a person, accountability, and that, but that's what a sponsor in AA is, or some kind of mentor or coach, or somebody sober longer than you um, who can say, yeah, I'm not sure that getting a dog right now is the best thing <laughs> on day three after your sixth relapse in a row. Not sure a dog right now. Could you just like wait, I don't know, for 20 days continuously sober when really it should be like 200, but... Yeah. I love 
that. That's really smart, I think. Um, yeah, I found a toolkit. Let's see, some of the things because I've been asked since is uh, tea instead of drinking has been so great. Um, but I found that it, when I talk about this, it's like drinking is sort of the new smoking once I realized the health benefits and, and what it was doing to my life. Um, so people just kind of have been jumping on the back bandwagon with me and I hope yeah. stay on board. But, um, I thought the WordPress story and the writing story for you was so cool for accountability for your own journey. Mm. But it was a time though, when there was no Facebook groups. I mean, eight years ago, it seems like it's not that long, but there were no Facebook groups and there was, there was a Yahoo group. In fact, like a, like you, like a listserv kind of thing. Um, then they, they, they moved to Facebook, but even on Facebook though, it's still your, even in a closed group, it's still your profile picture. It's still your name. So it's a closed group, but it's not anonymous. Um, whereas a, a WordPress blog, which again, nobody would create. Nowadays you would create an anonymous Instagram account. That's what you would do. And you would post on Instagram if you wanted something anonymous right now in the world of social media. But when I was starting, there were other sober bloggers. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't make it up. I was following somebody else's lead. Um, but it was a place where I could like open up a page, type what was happening to me, what I was learning, what I hated about the day, what worked, what didn't work, and then close it and then open it again the next day and then add something else to it. So I was doing it to save myself. I didn't ever have any expectation that anybody would read it to find it useful. I thought they might read it to see if I was still sober because I said I was and then I was worried about it and then I was. And so somebody might read me tomorrow to see if I stayed sober. But I, it never crossed my mind, nor could it have. I couldn't have done it with an instructional intent because then you could smell that. I would have, I would have made my own problem seems less. I would have made myself seem more in control or more that I had my shit together when I clearly did not. So it allowed me to walk right up to the screen and say, this is what's actually happening because I wasn't trying to help anybody. That turned out to be helpful. People found that helpful because it was actually honest and there was no bullshit. And it was like, this is really what it's like. You can have good days and bad days, but I wasn't trying to educate anybody, if that makes sense. Because sometimes people will email me and say, I'm on day two and I want to be a sober coach too. And my answer is save yourself first and then you can save other people, like, you know, quote unquote, save. Um, uh, if you go into, but it's like anything, if you go into a business hoping that you're going to make money, people can smell that. And if you go into business um, hoping to be of service, uh, they can tell. And if you start something that actually helps you and just sort of randomly turns out to help other people, that has a genuine twist, the genuineness to it that you can't fake. <laughs> it has genuineness that you can't fake. Um, people can tell. Um, but it makes it sound like I planned that and I didn't. So it's just been some weird kind of luck that also Facebook, if you posted on your, if you made an anonymous Facebook profile, for example, um, people wouldn't be able to come back to it five years later in a blog, all your posts are there so people can find you and then go back and read all your stuff in a row. That also has some usefulness in this current day of the internet. By the way, like what is it like in Paris versus Canada? Because you're very international. Is there a different drinking culture or response or is it about the same across the board? Well, my nationality is Canada and then we lived in France for 11 years and now we're in Vermont in the United States. Um, but also when we were in Paris, we spent a fair amount of vacation time in London. So um, in Canada, depending on where you live, there's quite a strong drinking culture. There's not always a ton to do. Long winter months, lots of hockey, lots of indoor music, uh, lots of alcohol in general as a group. 
Um, parts of the United States are like that too. Not all of it, but certainly parts, certain states um, like Florida are sort of places where you sort of feel like you must drink when you're there. Um, some parts of California, not all of it. Um, some of the large cities, some of the Northeast, uh, you know, like New York feels like you must drink wine if you're at a fancy restaurant, that kind of thing. Um, in France, there's a lot of alcohol consumed. Uh, it's frequent, but not large quantities. So you might have a four ounce glass of wine at lunch, one single four ounce, which of course I never did. Uh, and if I did, I would just give me a headache. Um, and you know, like a single glass at dinner time or two of these tiny little glasses. Um, culturally, it's inappropriate to be drunk in public. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It just means it's not happening in public. Um, it's very rare. The most of the overdrinking that I saw in France was from foreigners, um, either tourists or people visiting from other parts of Europe or, or the UK or Americans. Um, but then if you go to London, it's sort of normal quote unquote, to be drunk in public and to be drunk on the train or the, the, the tube or to be in a restaurant and to be loud and, you know, having a good, having a good time, quote unquote. I mean, I keep, keep using air quotes that you can't see. Um, uh, there's definitely a pub culture as well in the United Kingdom, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, lots of, um, Socializing happens in pubs, although it's also entirely possible to go to a pub and have a tonic, turns out. Um, different cultures definitely have um, different emphasis. Like if you go to Portugal, they have to, or they have to offer you a drink like within 10 seconds. If you're standing in the lineup waiting to get in the restaurant, the owner will come out with a bottle and offer you a shot standing in the, like a, some local drink. You just say, no, thank you. I mean, it, it's offered. Um, but you know, that happens at Olive Garden in the United States. If you go into Olive Garden and you sit down, they show up at your table with an open bottle of wine saying, can I pour you some? Um, that's kind of aggressive. Now at Olive Garden, you understand that number one, they're not interested in your addictive nature or that the, the drug, it's the, the alcohol itself is addictive. They're not really considering that they're considering the percentage markup on an, on a high markup product, which is what booze is. And, um, Anybody who runs a restaurant who is in food service like I am knows that people restaurants rely on alcohol sales because they it brings in money. It has nothing to do with your well-being. It has nothing, in fact, to do with the quality of the wine. Um, it's a it's a high value product. So if you imagine that there were fancy cocaine stores with nice lighting and cool bottles with nice names and funny labels and great ads with hunky men and it's cocaine or it's heroin. I mean. I don't know about you, but if I had ever tried cocaine, um, I'm pretty sure I would have liked it. And I'm pretty sure that would have been a bad idea. So that there are nice wine stores, uh, sure. They're trying to sell a high markup product to people who are addicted to it. So, you know, you got a sensitive head and the product is addictive. They love you, frankly. Um, and then they'll put in tiny print at the bottom, please drink responsibly, as if somehow that was an option. It's a beautiful analogy. I completely agree because as I've gone on this journey, I've learned that the health benefits and the addictive elements or the health drawbacks and addiction addiction elements of uh, wine versus cocaine is similar, if not worse, I believe. Alcohol, I believe, is more addictive is what I was researching. Well, if you look at the number of people who die each year from different kinds of behavior. Um, but you also, it, if you apply common sense to this, what percentage of people who go to the emergency room are A&E in the United Kingdom? What percentage of people go to A&E or to emergency where alcohol's involved? More than 
What percentage of domestic abuse calls by the, to the police have alcohol involved? Most. What percentage of car accidents in general have alcohol involved on either side? Lots. One of my pen pals, one of my, I think he's just a subscriber. I don't, I'm not sure he's actually paid me any money. He was, he says, but he's a long-term subscriber. So I consider him to be like one of my pen, one of my pen pals. He's a policeman. And he says, often he'll get called to a car accident. And when you get out of the police car and you're walking towards the car accident, he says, you can smell the alcohol before you get there. When, when there's been an accident and people are hurt and there was booze involved. And he's like, you know, you smell that one time and it's just like saddening because you know that if they were sober, this would not have happened. If there was no drinking involved, well, if there was no drinking involved, the drink driving arrests and drink driving deaths wouldn't occur, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but I don't have that as a firsthand experience. This is what I learned from talking to thousands of people. But I think that this is how we all learn things. We learn by the experience of others. We learn by stories. We learn by other people telling us what happened to them. I don't think we have to experience this ourselves. I don't think we have to wait for a low bottom. I don't think we have to say, oh, I need to try moderation, even though she says it's not going to work because, you know, I got to try for myself. I think we do learn from other people. This would be one of those things that we could learn from other people. Love that. I think that's why the work you're doing is so important and I really admire it because you probably have prevented in the work you do that kind of thing from happening. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And I would say also, I mean, that's kind of what struck me as well is for some reason alcohol was so integral in the culture. It seemed like I had to moderate for a long time or, you know, that's just what you do. You just drink. Um, it almost was like a revelation to think, oh, I just, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to get into a car wreck before I decide to stop this. I can just stop. And right. um, yeah, it's a weight lifted. Right. Exactly. So do you have like sort of a community that you recommend to people or how do, how do you go about it or your community? Yeah, it's interesting because I have like a curated community. I don't have a forum or a group. Um, I think that two people on both on day two aren't much support to each other, although it seems like it should be. Um, I generally recommend that people work with somebody who's further along than them. I mean, I understand being in a group makes you feel not alone. And I think that's definitely important. But in terms of getting your actual advice and support, um, it, it, it could probably come from somebody further along. But like I said, that could be a sponsor or because uh, in AA, you can get a, a sponsor for free. And online, I mean, nowadays during COVID times, all, lot, all the meetings are online. They're anonymous. You don't have to speak. You don't have to use a video. You can speak in the chat and ask to talk to somebody offline. I mean, there's a hundred ways to, to get somebody to talk to you um, for free. And then there's now lots of paid groups as well. If, if you're looking for groups like um, The Luckiest Club, Laura McEwen's group, um, Smart Recovery is online as well. Uh, like I said, AA or NA or OCOA, um, Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACOA. Um, uh, my site is more me working one-on-one with people. So I send out free emails every day to everyone who's subscribed to the free emailer list, which might be 30,000 people. Um, but I'm not, I'm not having personal relationships with those folks. I do live radio where I broadcast um, and might have 200 people listening, but then you're all listening at the same time. And that creates a kind of community feeling. It's not like I'm on day three, what day are you on? But you're all listening at the same time and you can see how many people are listening and you know that you're not alone. Sometimes people will send me comments or emails during the live recording that I'll read out loud. And so that, you know, creates the feeling of community again here with the air quotes, but it's not the same kind of community. Like I'm on day two, who else is on day two? Let's do it together. 
I personally don't think that's helpful. The day two, let's help each other. Um, although there, and also there's millions of other sites that already offer that. So I don't, I don't have it. I don't have a forum. They're hard to manage. It's hard to, there can be a kind of a junior high school clickish behavior. It's difficult if you post something and you don't get enough likes and other people get more likes and then you think nobody listens to you. There's too many of my own buttons would get pushed in that particular environment. Um, so most of the stuff that I do is one-on-one. So, but again, one-on-one in a group, like how, how weird is that? Uh, in a community alone or in a, in a community individual, in a community independent. Um, so I'll provide a list of tools. You pick the ones that work for you. I'll record audios. You don't like audios. You'll wait till I do the transcripts. You'll read the transcripts because text works better for you. Um, I provide the stuff and then people use it or, or not, but, and some people pay for some things and some people don't probably 85% of what I do is free. And so lots of people don't pay for stuff and the people who do more than obviously make it worthwhile for me to do it for everybody. There's lots of books and stuff that we read that just doesn't resonate with us for whatever reason. Sometimes we might say, oh, it's because they don't have kids or they do have kids or it's a man or they're too old or whatever. But usually it's something about the way they talk that either it resonates with us or it doesn't. And so I want to make sure that people can hear me, read me, you know, listen to audio. Some of the videos, I, I do put videos on Facebook Live. See things, not me, not my head, but see things before they ever spend any money. Um, and I've got stuff that's available from literally, you know, a dollar, two dollars, I think is the lowest. A dollar is the lowest thing up to, you know, thousands of dollars if you wanted to have weekly calls, for example. Um, and that you find on that continuum what works for you. And the only measurement of what works is, are you continuously sober? And if you're not, then maybe try something else. Do you have any tips for people that are like, like how they can set them up for success so they're not falling over constantly and breaking that promise and getting an erosion of self-esteem? Yeah, it's try different. If what you've been trying isn't working, then try different. And usually that means adding in accountability. Like you need help with treats. You need help with avoiding overwhelm. You need to bounce ideas off of somebody and get some feedback. Uh, you need to be able to, you need to have to tell somebody when you relapse, not just drink and start again and just go, oh, well, I'm on day six minus three. Um, actually say I'm on day one again. Um, not because it's um, embarrassing, but because it makes it real. We can sort of like fib and lie to ourselves and exaggerate and stretch the truth, especially when drinking is concerned. So if you actually pay somebody to be your support and then you have to tell them what day you're on every time, every day, um, you're less likely to relapse. I mean, that's the truth. You're just less likely. Nobody wants to email and go, I'm on day one again. It happens. I mean, it happens. People do email and say that they're on day one. But psychologically, we we try to avoid that. And so – the the analogy that I use is how much university college work would you have done if there were no courses, no assignments, no grades, and you didn't pay anything, right? You would have read half of one book one time. And instead, we can do three years of reading and writing and talking and, and, and exams and studying and, and come out with like a whole learned package of, of stuff. You, you go to school to be a social worker. Uh, you know, you, you come out at the end of it, having learned something, gone through a process, not every moment of it you love, not all of it's fun. Uh, how far are you going to get in terms of making a large mental health change, like quitting drinking with no external support without reading anything. And if you just buy a book, what's the difference between buying a book and being in a book club? Well, when you're in a book club, you got to read the bloody book. 
not just fake it. So, so it's not just buy books, right? It's buy books and read them. Okay, well, how do you make yourself read them? Uh, if you equate it to going to college, you have a person with a structure that you paid money to. Suddenly, then you read the book. I mean, how many essays about Shakespeare did you write that were not related to school? None. Me? None. How about you? Zero. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There was external accountability, not internal. Uh, how many times do we go to the gym alone versus when we hire a, a trainer? Well, I don't want to hire a trainer. They're expensive. Okay. But if you hire the trainer, you'd get the problem solved. What's your favorite sober treats? Do you have one for yourself or one that you recommend to clients? I'm mostly a food treat person. That's me personally. Um, my head lights up if food's involved. But I, but the treat could be a pineapple or a mango. It doesn't have to be chocolate and cake all the time. Um, I like uh, baths. I like candles. I like clean sheets. I like fuzzy socks. I like buying trashy magazines that I would normally buy. Um, today I bought a random uh, grocery store peanut butter protein bar that I'd never had before just because I'm in a new place and I'm unfamiliar with all the brands. I thought, ooh, that looks like a nice – that's my treat for going for groceries at 8.30 in the morning is to have a little peanut protein bar. Um, for me, it's mostly food, but it, it, people have to figure out what they're – I mean, I talk a lot about treats in my stuff, in the free stuff and the paid stuff. Um, people have to figure out what feels like a reward – it's not like it will keep me from drinking. It's not that a peanut protein bar keeps me from drinking. It's that it's a reward for doing a hard thing. Well, not that groceries were that hard, but it was 8.30 in the morning. I mean, really. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> don't you think? Yeah. It's a trophy. No, I agree. I think that's something we don't do as adults, but we do it for our pets. We do it for our children. You know, I think uh, sobriety, especially, it's kind of like a child that you need to take care of yourself. In what is the biggest failure or parent failure that set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure? Do I have a failure that set me up for success? Uh, I think any failure can set you up for success if you learn something from the failure and do something differently afterwards. It's not just think something different. It's not just now I'm committed or now I'm determined. It's what do you do? It's not what do you think, especially with mental health stuff, addiction stuff, compulsive behavior stuff. It's not about what you think. It's about what you do. So if I have a failure with my oven, which I have right now because I'm in a new apartment with a new oven that I barely understand. And I'm a caterer. So this should not happen to me. And it's been seven weeks of an oven. I don't understand. Every time I make something, I change my approach because I'm trying to find something that works. I can't just put my cookies back in the oven and go, well, hopefully this time it'll work. I have to try something different. I have to change the rack. I have to change the temperature. I have to change the color of the pan. I had to do a whole bunch of things until I figured out what the solution was including asking my landlord if I could swap out the oven. Did she have a place to store this one if I bought a new one and took it with me when I left? Like, can I just replace this? I'd expect her to replace it. She said yes, by the way. But it took me seven weeks to ask that question. And I had asked it one day before I solved the problem, which was, uh, if anybody cares, when you have a gas oven, double pans, two pans. Like cookie, cook, do two cookie sheets, one underneath. It protects the bottom from burning. That, this is the problem. But seven weeks, seven but if you just put the same cookies back in the same oven, what, what are you hoping? That, are you hoping that you'll try harder? You're hoping that it will click? You're hoping that one day you'll wake up and feel like it? Or you could do something different? So I think that's probably my biggest, that's the biggest failure that can turn into a success is it's not about what you think. It's about what you do, including doing things that your head thinks won't work. Probably, probably does mean doing things against what your head thinks is a good idea because our head wants us to drink. So we have to do things 
against that, including taking advice from sober people, which sounds like nonsense. What do you mean treats? That's ridiculous. I'm a grown ass adult. I don't need flowers for quitting drinking. It's like, yeah, as it turns out, you do. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. In the last five years, what um, new, what belief behavior habit would you say has most improved your life? I would definitely say that quitting drinking is the biggest achievement for me since, since, other than being married, I think it's my largest achievement to date. Where can we find you and uh, tell us all about how we can become your pen pal? Uh, the website to find me for the free daily emails is tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com. And you would want to be on that list and follow me for a while before you paid for anything. And then you would start with some of the $1 things and then you would start, but then you would have a $5 thing. And then you would see how it worked with you. I do some work one-on-one with pen pals, right? The second there's a waiting list. Sometimes there isn't. Um, but all of that information comes to you once you sign up for the free stuff. I try not to give people too much overwhelming stuff to begin because they don't know me. So I usually suggest that people get on the free list and like read that for a couple of weeks. And then I slowly like pepper little links to other things in those emails and you can start to follow them and see what works for you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot today. It was a real pleasure having you. To recap, what did we learn about this process? I think there's a lot of takeaways that we can use to our benefit, not just around sobriety, but around making life changes, building new habits, and discarding what behaviors might not be working for us anymore. So let's recap what we learned. If you're looking to make a change in your lifestyle this year or exercise more discipline, here is what I would prescribe based on Bell's process. One, set yourself up for success. Following through and keeping your word to yourself will raise your self-esteem. And conversely, breaking your word to yourself will make you feel worse. So if you can get started on the right foot, set a date, tell everybody about it, get yourself excited, read up on literature, that is an excellent way to ensure your follow through. Two, if you fail, don't blame yourself, blame the process and try different. Like Belle says, give it a new approach. It's not your fault. It's possible you just didn't have the right tool in your toolkit. So if you were trying to drill a screw into the wall, you wouldn't blame yourself if there was no hammer. You would just go out and buy a hammer. So practice expanding your toolkit. Three, run self-improvement or habit changes like an experiment. Be it, Put on your science hat when you are experimenting with a new habit to figure out what's wor- working for you, what isn't working for you. If there's conventional wisdom that you've written off in the past, maybe there's something to it. Or conversely, perhaps it's not the right advice for you and you need to try something that goes a little bit against the grain. Everybody is different and everybody forms habits differently. Four, Expand your toolkit. As I said, instead of one or five coping mechanisms, fill your toolkit with at least 20 resources. Everything from self-soothing techniques to motivational literature or podcasts like this one. Five, create an accountability structure. You might experience best results with a pen pal, coach, support group, or anonymously sharing your experience on a blog like Belle did. And who knows, maybe it'll turn into an incredible coaching business. Ideally, you should be working with someone who has already accomplished what you have set out to do, or at least is further ahead on the journey than you are. 
The reason for this is a lot of times you can team up with somebody, you're both struggling to quit a habit, but then maybe you also start giving each other permission to indulge in that habit. Let's say you're trying to quit chocolate. There's nothing like two people who are addicted to chocolate teaming up to try to quit a habit. So just try to find somebody who's at least further along and has accomplished what you would like to. Six, when it comes to that destructive little voice in your head, you are not the only one who hears it. The secret to making it go away is to give it less power and draw a circle around it. And that's where meditation can be really helpful. There's also a lot of great books out there from the naked mind, rational recovery, letting go. It's not just about drinking. It's that voice in your head that isn't thinking of the best thing for you to do that's taking care of yourself. Seven, focus on quitting one thing at a time. I cannot emphasize this enough. Focus on one single thing. Do not try to start a daily running habit and go on a heavy restrictive diet fad du jour at the same time. This is one of my weakest spots. I love getting that adrenaline of spring cleaning. We're going to change our complete life and do a makeover and wake up the next day like Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality or one of those other not very feminist forward movies. But that's not how change works. Change is slow. So instead of trying to do everything all at once, instead earn the right to a new habit. So once you've been running for 90 days, then you've earned the right to let's say, cut out television of your life or cut down on coffee. So just take it one thing at a time and go easy on yourself because consistency is key. Eight, treat any new habit like a baby bird and nurture it accordingly. So do whatever it takes to keep your habit alive and intact. Your habit survival is key and you need to build your life around that and not the other way around. So that might mean saying no to a party. It might also mean saying yes to eating cake at home and watching movies all night um, if you're trying to quit smoking, for example. So take care of yourself and allow yourself to indulge. You don't have to be disciplined across all areas of your life because preserving that one single new habit is what you need to be focusing on. Which leads me to my next tip that we've learned, which is treat yourself. Nine, self-soothing skills are key when it comes to making a new habit in your life. Um, Why do we give our pets and our kids treats and forget to reward ourselves as adults? And a lot of us are very food driven. So that could be counterintuitive if you're trying to go on a diet. I know for sure that treats will work best if they are intrinsically rewarding. So let's say you're trying to exercise and eat healthy Instead of treating yourself with a big donut after a workout, treat yourself instead with a beautiful brand new yoga mat or a pair of really comfy yoga pants, something that encourage you to do the habit more. But make sure you do treat yourself if you want a peanut butter bar protein um, just because you got to the grocery store in the morning. There's nothing too small. Adulting is not as easy as everyone likes to make it look. So remember to treat yourself. And finally, start with a cornerstone habit if you really want to see those exponential rewards and improvements, because a cornerstone habit is something that has compounding value, kind of like a stock investment, and it will trickle out into the rest of your life as well. So if you get better sleep, you're going to be have a more productive day, you're going to eat healthier, overall you'll have better discipline. 
So improving your sleep is a great cornerstone habit. Reading is an excellent cornerstone habit as well. Uh, I also recommend focusing on cooking at home or of course exercise. What did you take away? Let me know in the comments. Uh, You can email us or post in the group anytime. Just send an email to hello at moneyselfmade.com and you can join our group Facebook dot com forward slash groups forward slash money self made. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode and if it helped you. Are you trying dry July? Are you trying to do anything else big this year? I want to hear all of your goals and dreams so we can make them come true and I can offer support. Thank you for joining us today. Make it your mission to make someone else's day better and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.